Hello. <laughs> uh, yes. For those who can't see you, you're <laughs> you're dressed like Antonio Banderas in Interview with a Vampire, which yeah. to me looks wet, sexy. Moi. Long hair. Yep. And some kind of red, long. It's like a red women's Victorian coat. I got you. That's quite a woman that uh, you peeled that off of her. Antonio Banderas was? The whatever woman's corpse you pulled that off of from the Victorian era when you went to the Smithsonian or whatever. I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. It's Halloween, baby. Spookiest time of year. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole thing. Spooky season. Yeah. Spooky well, season. It's never been a bigger deal. It's it's really become this holiday as much for grown-ups as it is for children. It's really become the Christmas of holidays, you might say. Big business. Big business. I mean, you're really right. It's it, it's like another Christmas. And there's data to back this up. Financial data or, you know, kind of retail spending data. The National Retail Federation releases uh, these like kind of benchmark surveys around all the major holidays to talk about consumer spending. And the one that they released for Halloween this year is kind of crazy. This year, Halloween 2023, we're going to reach a record $12.2 billion in Halloween spending. There was obviously a, a dip in the in the pandemic, and then it kind of shot back up. And now we are at the highest level of spending ever. Total spend in 2005, $3.3 billion. The total spend again this year in 2023 is going to be 12.2 billion, which is a hell of a thing for a year in which the narrative has been all about inflation and the economy being yeah. in a state of free fall. And yet not so. Not so. Because we prioritize Halloween as the Christmas of holidays, Stephen. That is it. If you're not going to buy slutty French maid for Halloween, what are you going to buy it for? Easter, I guess. I guess that's the other option. There it is. It's it's the Easter. You show up to Easter dressed like Antonio. Mm-hmm. You're turning heads, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why is he still here? Why is he still dressed like that? Why his costume's all dirty? Let's all back out it, of the room slowly. It's all like frayed at the edges. Yeah. And here's another data point that proves that this holiday really is becoming very much for adults. If you look at the breakdown of costume spending. Adults now account for nearly half of the amount of money spent on costumes, right? But then the next one, children, clearly, 34%. You know the last one, Brandon? Well, you got adults and you got children. What's the other, only other significant population in the United States that has any kind of economic buying power? Hmm. I'm going to go pets. Yep. Pets, 17% of all Halloween costume spending went to pets. Those jerks will spend some dough. These guys, those, uh, well, the pets aren't spending the money. I would say, though, that if I'm being extremely honest with you, just between the two of us. Go ahead, just us. I feel like the most innovation in those past two decades has been in pet costume design. I mean, human costumes always kind of look the same. Kid stuff is like whatever. It's either that like. That, yeah. you know, that PVC plastic Boring. with the mask that the kids wear. And yeah. then adults, it's like, you know, it's always some crap that you can get from Amazon. But the stuff for pets creates like a trompe l'oeil. Like there's weird tricks of the eye where it's like that 
pug really looks like Yoda. <laughs> they look like they're walking like on mm-hmm. two feet, but this it's is amazing. their front feet. It's an amazing that. investment. I feel like that's where. Is that new? Yeah, that's got to be. I mean, I don't remember seeing new, right? that. That's certainly a yeah. post-internet phenomenon. I don't believe that. Post yeah, Y2K, Y2K, for sure. Yeah. And that, I mean, and I and I feel like that's what more than anything gives me kind of hope for the future. It's like we'll always be coming up with new ideas for pet costumes. And as long as that's going on, we're going to be okay. I think we're going to be just fine. You know, we we come back to a theme on here on Journals from time to time. Cucumber time, right? That time of year mm. when nothing's going on. Um, yeah. And so they just find dumb stories. And that's usually during the summer. And like when people are not paying attention I think there's a there's a species of that that happens with Halloween, oh, which yeah. is a ton of stuff happens around the mid to late October period, particularly on election year. But still, mm-hmm. somehow the media finds oh, yeah. time to report on whatever the Halloween thing is. Like you got to write about it. And specifically, the thing that they, in one way, shape, or form, like to report on is the fact that the Halloween candy that your kids are getting for free. That's going to kill you. Well, that's going to kill your kids. The Halloween candy kills your kids. Kills your kids. It's, it's full of, of razor blades, syringes, that's drugs. Heroin. Heroin. Synthetic opiates. You know, it, it's it, that's the, the skeleton of the story is just the, ha- the candy's going to kill your kids. All that f- nice stuff. Well, it's not nice. And it's interesting because last year it really ramped up because uh, at the same time, the DEA put out this warning about the rainbow fentanyl pills. Do you mm-hmm. remember this? Yeah. yeah. It was at right, it, right around almost to the day last year. They issued this warning about these rainbow colored fentanyl pills. Okay. And that is true. They, they, they had been seizing all of these sort of little tiny pills that were rainbow colored that were full of this, you know, unbelievably lethal synthetic opiate. It looks like candy. There was a, a, a warning issue, right? And then the media kind of got together and they just like created this panic right that this is the year where you've always heard about the candy being poisoned but this is the year the shit's going down for real it's really gonna uh, happen this time our our good buddy here's a guy you haven't thought about in a while herschel walker mm-hmm. he was yeah. a big um amplifier of this signal here's the thing again fentanyl's dangerous and this fentanyl looked like candy the drug dealers apparently were calling it sweet tarts or skittles but there was no actual case in which any of this made it into like the suburban candy supply, right? But it was just these two things that existed in the world. And all you needed to do was sort of connect the dots to create right. a panic around it. You say candy within the window of the Halloween discourse complex, and it's automatically <laughs> going to be associated with that. Exactly. Yeah. And then there is no warning in the DEA's release that says, Watch out for the Halloween candy. But then obviously, as you said, it was just too easy to put two and two together. NPR did some work last year to dispel this myth. Um, They quoted a DEA administrator, Ann Milgram, uh, talking to NBC News. And basically, she said that they really haven't seen any connection to Halloween. And, And the dealers oftentimes use these different colors to just as branding, essentially. So they also were talking to other drug experts in the piece And essentially, the drug experts pointed out that, like, it's not good for business for drug dealers to kill little kids with their drugs, right? There's no reason. It would bring, like, heat to the whole operation. And for a trick-or-treating age child, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, which I thought to be, like, a very cynical 
yet extremely accurate sort of reason why a drug dealer would not want to distribute their product for free to suburban mothers to kill children. Like none of it makes sense once you break it open a little bit. The problem is, and this is all according to the piece, is that like some of these myths around things like fentanyl are really more harmful for ways that you might not think. For example, there is another myth that says that a first responder who handles fentanyl can die from like, in you know, just from touching it or, you know, working with a, a person who's dying from an overdose. And that could cause first responders to maybe be hesitant to help save a life like that. And that's also not true. Uh, they have a, a, a this retired NYPD police officer kind of say something to that effect. So it's such a perfect example of a piece of misinformation. But it happens every single year. And part of that is because I think the way that really good misinformation works is that it the the myth itself has consequences that are so visceral and so Im immediately relatable that it causes this emotional response in the reader and then sort of clouds any sort of judgment or desire to do any further critical thinking because the easiest thing to do upon hearing a piece of misinformation is just avoid it altogether. Yeah, it's also a simple good and evil construct, you know. Drug dealers are these shadowy figures that live in the dark, only come out at night. Yep. Kind of like vampires. And they're out to prey on our children. That's been a riff on the theme since, you know, way back in the D.A.R.E. days, you know, D.A.R.E. to keep kids off drugs from the 80s. It was always like kids yep. are in danger of becoming drug addicts. Drug dealers are always preying on kids to start taking drugs. Yep, yep, yep. It's true. If you are interested about digging in a bit deeper here, I found a really great article out of the university at Albany, which is part of the State University of New York, uh, entitled Fighting Misinformation About Halloween Candy Tampering. And it, it's a really good piece from their School of Public Health um, that kind of pulls together a lot of neat sources on this. The writers of that piece pointed me to a, another piece in USA Today, again from last year, uh, in which they quote this guy, David Hertzberg, okay? And he's a history professor out of the University of Buffalo, and he studies the history of drug abuse in America. So, you know, according to him, this is sort of like a continuation of the narrative around drugs since Prohibition, right? And it also kind of perpetuates in this weird way this myth that some people can become drug addicts or die from them, and some people can't, right? And so it pours into everything from white flight to this sort of demonized caricature of the evil inner city drug dealer whose drugs are making their way into your quiet, safe suburban neighborhood. And again, all of that is packed into this weird, the candy's going to kill your kids myth. Yeah, it's funny how there's this thread of argumentation that's come up in the last 10, 20, whatever years that tries to recontextualize the nature of drug use, right? Like we think of drug addicts as like any addict, they're victims and so on, and that drug dealers are just part of this economic process. I mean, obviously, we think about cartels as these monstrous things that are going on that are doing terrible things to people. But in general, I think the average street dealer, you know, I think most people go, well, they're, they're kind of like doing their thing and they are a product of the system without making apologies for them, Steve. And I'm not trying to say, mm -mm. you know, but I am saying I think there's, if not an acceptance of them, certainly an ability to put what they're doing into a larger socioeconomic context. Yeah. So they seem like, well, we understand why this is happening as opposed to, you know, again, the myth of this monstrous figure that comes out of the darkness. 
And just, we don't know why this is happening other than it's just bad. Yeah, why is he wearing a red cloak? Why is his hair black? Why is he drinking blood? Mm -hmm. Drug dealer. Drug dealer. <laughs> dealer of drugs. Look at that Victorian drug dealer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> With his metal syringe. Yeah, hell, then cocaine was legal. I mean, people just... Dude, you can do whatever the heck you wanted, yeah. man. Yeah. It also should, should be noted that uh, in the NPR piece, some of the drug experts were like, yeah, they're not preying on little kids with the candy-looking fentanyl, but the tweeners, they are doing that to a certain extent to get slightly older children hooked, to a certain extent, along with this sort of branding concept. So it's not to say that drug dealers are not, in some cases, preying upon children. They just want to do so in such a way where probably one would think that they you know, don't die and they get hooked and you have a customer We're right a so customer, again that company yeah. gets back to like this like cynical view of like of course they're not gonna go after the trick-or-treaters that's bad for business because they're sort of you know first and foremost a lot of times businessmen business persons steven women can be drug dealers too of course <laughs> anybody can be a drug dealer even you brandon um yeah. so back to the kids are candy's gonna kill Have your kids I ever you know it's funny to think about that I was like, have I ever dealt drugs? And in fact, I have. Oh. Yeah. And I realized yeah, here that it is. the people I've dealt drugs to have been my parents. Nice. Who live in Texas and cannot get yep. weed and gummies and things uh, very easily. All right. So when I go to town, Stephen, I like to dole it out a little bit. Candy man's coming to town. <laughs> get, get, the, right. get the guest bedroom ready, mom. Candy man's <laughs> coming to town. Yeah. That is not a version of the future that the 1980s Stay Off Drugs commercials prepared me for. Kids, no. you fuck around with drugs now. Someday you're going to be selling them to your parents who are going to be happy. Wow. You charge them? No, I don't. I give them away. But You charge them? No, first time's you're free. Like, all right, mom, first, that'll be 40 bucks. <laughs> first time's free. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You do like a markup? Yeah. It's one of those where she'll insist that she'll like try and pay more. And I'll be like, no, it's fine. And then my stepdad will just assume it's a gift. And I'll be like, uh, <clears throat> and then he won't pay. And then I have to send my friend Tiny to break his knees. You don't charge your mom, but she makes sure there's some extra glaze on that ham Christmas <laughs> Eve, if you know what I'm saying. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she does do that. Okay, so people perennially think that Halloween candy is going to kill their children. Why? Well, in addition to some of the factors that our man from the USA Today article said about sort of like this systemic racism and history of prohibition in America, a lot of this can be traced back, some people say, to basically two incidents, both of which that happened in the state of New York in the 60s and 70s. Let's hear it. So... Politico.com, they did a really great piece a couple of years back that dissected the history of how these myths came to be. The first time this story sort of emerged from the American hive mind was back in 1964 in Long Island, New York, where this woman named Helen File, she was like, <laughs> it's really funny. She was annoyed because there were too many kids who were trick-or-treating who were clearly too, too old, old to be trick-or-treating, yes. which is like a wonderful moment yeah. too in childhood where like you're going out and it's, you're like 14 yeah. and you're like, mom, we're going out for Halloween. They're like, what are you doing? Yeah. 
They weren't wearing costumes, I bet. They just went in What's in the backpack? Street clothes. What's in the backpack? What's in the backpack? Why are you wearing all black oh, sure. and you yeah. and all the eggs are gone? Yeah. Anyway, so there were too many kids showing up to beg for candy. So in order to, to beg for show, candy. In order to beg. Steven, I don't how know. does it work in Santa Monica? That's, they all have to come up on their knees. Everybody is basically a Dickensian character. Please. <laughs> please, Mrs. File. Can I have some more? Yeah. Where you come from, Stephen, they would just, everybody would get porridge. No, West Side, baby. Where I come from, kids pitch. Here's my pitch oh, sure, to give yeah. me candy. Yeah. You get an, it's a pitch. You get a, a signed copy of the pilot for Taxi. Ma'am, here's my ask. They call it an ask. Here comes the big ask. Give me Butterfinger. I like that. All yeah. right. This woman, she's fed up, all right? And so she set up these like special packages to give to these grubby older kids the kids would come up and she'd pass out steel wool dog biscuits ant poison those are wrapped up in tinfoil and effectively you know this was her version of giving a bad child a lump of coal sure. all right trolling the little bastards this woman is in by all other accounts totally normal but she obviously just cracked on halloween right and I'll, even some of the pellets i guess in her defense were labeled poison clearly you know, this is back in the 60s. You can do whatever the heck sure. you want. This is probably like a legitimate gag or whatever. But her defense was, yeah, but the poison was labeled poison. Yeah. Her only offense was committing yeah. to the freaking bit. Mm -hmm. These kids can read. They'll be fine. There's no crime. Right? That's the 60s. I imagine the 60s just sounded amazing. Yeah. Man. So basically then all these newspapers picked that story up, sort of blew it out of proportion, and that sort of went a bit haywire, right? And that sort of started the idea of the scare. But then, in 1970, on October 28th, there's like an award-winning New York Times writer, a woman named Judy Clemserud, wrote this op-ed. And they ran it. They didn't check it. They didn't do anything. They just let this person put this poison into the New York Times, printed a billion copies of it. And, and, and they didn't even label it poison. It's <laughs> a good callback episode. There's lots going on here. Okay, so to quote her op-ed, those Halloween goodies that children collect this weekend on their rounds of trick-or-treating may bring them more horror than happiness. Take, for example, that plump red apple that Junior gets from a kindly old woman down the block. It may have a razor blade hidden inside. The chocolate, quote, candy bar may be a laxative, the bubblegum may be sprinkled with lye. The popcorn balls may be coated with camphor. The candy may turn out to be packets containing sleeping pills. That's wild. I also think it's such a product of the time that the things that are listed in there are lye, camphor, packets of sleeping <laughs> pills, a chocolate laxative. I mean, like that all is very old yeah. school. Like camphor. Yeah. Pack of lucky strikes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just like weird, weird <laughs> things. You can get your own... You can get your own bag of acid, you know, like, oh, like what? Who are yeah. you with? Anyway. It sounds crazy. Yeah. Was this the 1964 or 1898? Mm -hmm. Like all of these old timey concepts. The razor blades, though, clearly a perennial favorite. We're still talking about razor blades. You bet, because you could feel it. That's the misinformation. You can feel, you can imagine immediately what would fe it would feel like to bite into a yeah. razor blade. So you're like, screw it. I'm not doing apples this year. Um, <laughs> I'm not doing apples this year. Whatever. Never it's again. easier just to avoid the apples yeah. than, than risk the 0.1% chance there's a razor blade sure. in it. But here's the even crazier part about this op-ed, is that the writer was getting her information directly from the New York State Health Commissioner, a person named Dr. Hollis S. Ingram, who told her, quote, 
In recent years, pins, razor blades, slivers of glass, and poison have appeared in the treats gathered by children across New York State. However, there's never been an actual reported or corroborated truthful case in which any of this stuff occurred. Yeah, that's amazing. Never once did any of this stuff show up. It's always just been urban legend, which maybe is why. Yeah. You know, if there are urban legends attached to, like, Thanksgiving, like, oh, my gosh, you know, somebody hit a grenade in the turkey, you know. But that doesn't make sense. <laughs> That's not creepy or negative. You know, it doesn't it doesn't conform to the spirit of Thanksgiving the way like razor blades and apples conforms yeah. to the myth of Halloween. Maybe that's got something to do with it. Nevertheless, yeah. apparently it's all horseshit. Complete horseshit because people did some research in the late 80s where they checked major newspapers throughout the whole country from 1958 to 1988 because the thinking is that any story this horrible would have been reported right so they found 78 cases and two deaths all right 78 cases 100 percent pranks they were all pranks none of them real the two deaths upon further investigation by police in whatever area it happened turned out to be murder <laughs> sure but not because it was slipped in there, but because somebody was thinking that they could hide under the myth of candy killing whomever once in a while and get away with it. But the police, they were hip to that and they busted them. This is an amazing detail to me. The irony of this is fantastic. Somebody thinks, oh, my God, I can commit the perfect crime. People are dying by the scores after Halloween because everybody's eating tainted candy. Why don't we try and poison somebody? We'll get away with it. No one will ever notice. It'll be the signal will be hidden in the noise. <laughs> no one's ever going to notice. It's going to be the perfect crime. And then, of course, it turns out that because no one does it, when someone does do it, uh, it's it's like a big it's freaking a big, deal. <laughs> shiny red apple full of big shiny red razor blades. Everyone notices. That's incredible to me, Stephen. It is pretty incredible. You know what? And that is why you got to you know learn to spot misinformation because. You know, otherwise, how are you going to get get away with murder? That's right. Yeah, that's the. See what I did there? I did see, see that. that. That's the lesson. And that's here. the real treat of this holiday season. That's the meaning that's of the... Christmas. You know what is actually the thing that kills people the most on Halloween? Um, cars, just cars. Ah, sure. Yeah, the true monster. So watch out for watch the cars. Out for cars. Man, yeah, it's the mundane thing. Makes sense. It's dark out. You're dressed in dark clothing. You're dressed like, unless me, unless you're me, you know, who's not getting hit by a car this Halloween. Probably you. Your boy Antonio Banderas in Interview with the Vampire. You can spot me like a freaking traffic signal. Too handsome to hit. Too handsome. Car will swerve into a tree before it hits your ass. Give that guy a contract. <laughs> That's right. You're going door to door in Santa Monica pitching your script. Pitching yeah. me. Pitching my pitching vibe. vibe. Yeah. Stephen, I appreciate you opening the creaky dungeon door onto this story about spooky season, <laughs> scary things to talk about, and particularly yeah. misconceptions about this, that, and the other. It reminds me of another story that just came out, which is about Bordeaux, the creepiest of red wines. It's definitely vampire juice. It's absolutely vampire juice. I, yeah, yeah. There's blood it's in the there. It looks the most like, no one's like, oh, California cab. That's, you know, no, it's not. Bordeaux is scary <laughs> wine. There's a study that came out in the journal iScience. Little bitty I, capital S, like iPod, iScience. Anyway, it's a yep. journal. Researchers looked at 50 years, Stephen, of 
wine critics rankings of wines okay in the bordeaux okay. region you know which has a very robust terroir 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 Ter- yeah like a big like a big dog no, like with like scruffy no, little face like the french for the land terroir anyway. oh anyway oh, okay. bordeaux is big wine country in france and obviously a lot of wine comes out of there and critics write a lot about it so this researcher andrew wood looked at 50 years of wine critics scores then he compared it to weather data from the bordeaux region which again is in france and from that extrapolated that climate change will actually be good for bordeaux wines yeah oh why well the years that the wine rankings were the best were years in which it was warmer and there was more rain and a shorter growing season. Climate change is predicted to create exactly those conditions in and around Bordeaux in years to come. So you have this sort of counterintuitive narrative in which wine is going to get better, at least wine in Bordeaux. Now, obviously, that's not saying that those weather conditions are going to be the same everywhere. So like some people are climate change deniers. Some of people are climate change, you know, sort of ring the alarmers. These Bordeaux Frenchies, they're climate change supporters. They're embracing it. They're embracing it. Okay, so so let's say it gets really, really good. But what about if the, the climate change is so profound that it like tanks all these other industries that are needed to produce good wine and get the good wine to your table? And so all of a sudden it's like Oh, I don't think that No, you just you just said you just said I can't wait for climate change so I could pour that Bordeaux <laughs> into my yeah. belly. That's exactly yes. what you said, right? Just now. <laughs> this is why it's always a mistake to record these episodes. I think that no, you're exactly right. The extremely delicate balancing act of writing about a potential positive result of climate change in this fraught Uh, narrative climate, let's say, is one that, you know, everybody has to be pretty careful about, which is why, Stephen, the stories that reported on this study all say things like, for example, Agence France Presse, the French press agency says, climate change is improving French wine, dot, 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 for now. And here's National Geographic, climate change could make French wine taste better, dot, 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 for now. They both, they had the same headline? They had essentially the same headline. Well, I guess that's also true, right? Because you're going to, it's like, you know what it's like, Brandon? Can I tell you exactly what this is like? Please. Say you're at a bar. Okay. A pub. Yeah. With your buds. You're back there, Mm -hmm. you're shooting pool. Sure. You suck at pool. Sounds right. Then you drink two beers. Suddenly you hit that window and you're freaking amazing at pool. You're loose enough, you're making it happen, but you're still, you still got your hand eye going. You're just sinking them. Then you drink three to four beers, suck at pool again. Like, the wine is here, it's going to get really good, and it's going to get really bad. Funny that you mentioned beer because another study that just came out said beer was going to go the other way and get worse. Oh. The same climate change, Stephen, that's going to bless your precious Bordeaux with so many tannins (laughs) and flavorings. And Sparkletons. Terriers in there. And Rosemans. Tiny little dogs. I don't know what it all the terms are. Uh, Beer. The terroirs. terroirs. All the terroirs. It's going to be barking with terroirs. Mm -hmm. Beer. Mm -hmm. You know it. I know it. Yeah. It's the third most widely consumed drink after water and tea. What? Researchers, Stephen, in the publication Nature Communications, 
published a study in which they, similar to the wine story, analyzed 47 years of European hops and found that the plants, what's called alpha acid content, which is what makes beer bitter and gives beer the aroma that people like so much, the hoppy smell, has already okay. declined by 0.6%. It's predicted to fall by as much as 30% by 2050. And on top of that, the research team found that the plants are going to be almost 20% less productive. So not only is it going to taste worse, it's going to be less of it to have. So By when? 2050. That's like I mean, now. Yeah, yeah, basically. It's soon, Stephen. It's soon. Like in our lifetime, you know, fingers crossed, in our lifetime, we're going to see beer suck. That's not our great-grandchildren's problems, like all this other climate change stuff. <laughs> Am I right, Brandon? You were just talking sure. about that earlier. Um, yeah, <laughs> but no, like seriously, it's weird that we're going to see that happen. Like like the French wines, this one particular French wine suddenly is going to like, and also there's going to be a market for that, right? Think about it. Like if you were in like the Bordeaux futures market, right? If that's a thing, I'm assuming, like you could like track that it, the quality is going to get better and stuff. But this episode is not meant to endorse any sort of financial information or anything. It'd be like if it's like, you know, like buying gold, like buy Bordeaux now. We'll buy your Bordeaux. Um, it's always interesting when you start thinking. Of, and I guess we all exactly what we're seeing with these massive natural disasters is the immediate today consequences of climate change. But something like the taste of beer is something you kind of assume to be such a constant. And there's going to be a lot of things that are going to start changing as a result of climate change that I think we're we're all not expecting. Yeah, the sense that we have of this post-apocalyptic future where everything's blasted and everything's dead, certainly let me say now that there are many negatives that are going to come out of climate change. But oh, you got to get that out of the way now. Where are you going? Yeah. Yeah, before I say what I'm about to say and, you know, what these stories seem to indicate, it's like, no, it's actually interesting to think that there's this post-apocalyptic future in which we're all sitting around in Mad Max armor just drinking wine. Like, that's the thing. Like, wine is everywhere. A nice Bordeaux instead of milk. Yeah, yeah, that's the future. It's just the future. The future is red with wine. But I was interested in this because I feel like you don't see a lot of mainstream stories that suggest a positive, even if they're qualified by saying, you know, dot, dot, dot for now. And so I was looking into, like, are there other stories that are out there that you can find that are about, you know, here are some positive changes that will come from climate change. Obviously, we have heard tons of the negatives, rising sea levels, shifting climate patterns, massive human migration, all of these things. But you know, you don't hear it. Well, incidentally, because of the way climate will shift, it means things are going to grow differently. And so that's what I found is scattered among all the bad news. There's a couple of pieces of good news. I mean, you know, relatively or potential benefit. And they're mostly around growing seasons. Uh, one story said, you know, the earlier onset of spring and a longer, warmer season, wetter season is going to be good for crops in general. Also, of course, more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere means plants have more stuff to breed, so potentially could increase their growth patterns. On the other hand, weeds will also be able to grow more uh, abundantly, so that's a problem that you have to think about. And pests, and then you have to think about water. So again, the stories are always sort of qualified. 
But, Stephen, if you're in the shipping business and you want to get somewhere quick, mm-hmm. melting sea ice in the Arctic will mean the Northwest Passage will be easier to navigate. So, Oh, yeah. There's like, I think they're already figuring all that out. Isn't that Russia extreme? I guess everybody's interested in those new shipping routes. Yeah, oh, yeah. Up, right? I mean, so the positive there is, well, ships can get places faster. On the other hand, it could lead to territorial war with nuclear-armed countries. But you're going to get those shipments of wine faster. Going to get those Halloween costumes to your doorstep. Now, in, in all those cases, there's like an immediate bad too. Right off the bat, you know, with the Northwest Passage opening up, that water goes somewhere that results in the rising sea level. Just a little bit of a rising sea level in some of these coastal cities will be catastrophic and nearly ap- apocalyptic, right? Um, but in all of these cases, like growing seasons, shipping routes wine the positive is just in terms of like commerce and capitalism like there's not like a existential positive well if you can grow food more easily i mean there is in the sense if you look at the zones where it will become more temperate and wetter there are going to be parts of the world where growing seasons are better and more food is produced yeah and then that food will just be made available for free because of its abundance no, of course not. I think the the takeaway from these stories is not zero sum in the sense that, you know, things are either better or worse. But it does mean that because there will be these shifts, one thing that we don't think about as much as in the case of the wine versus beer mm-hmm. is there will be some improvements in some places. And there will, of course, be negatives in other places. But the idea that in yeah. a limited way, you might see these positives and then also expect that people who are climate deniers are going to jump on that and say, see, things are better. Look at how much better yeah. the wine is, for example. And I think instead of thinking about climate change as this boogeyman, which is, again, I think we have a fairly robust sense of it being this negative, but thinking about it in a more holistic way, like, well, what will improve? What won't? And how do we compensate for those things? Like, for example, everyone's going to drink wine. No one's going to drink beer. So Things are going to get a little classier. Things are going to get a little classier. It's going to be more of a cafe culture. You're drinking for the antioxidants right. or whatever, for your heart. Tannins. I think that, yeah, you bring up a good point, too, about, like, even if, let's say, it's mostly bad, which it is, right? Like, like objectively, it, it, it has to be true that there will be some weird positives and then how will the media choose to report on those positives when they occur i think that's a new weird kind of dance that's going to need to be navigated you get a little glimpse of that when you look at some of the writing that comes out of the spectator which is a uk publication conservative leaning and when i look Mm -hmm. up stories about positive climate change stories some of the spectator stories come up. Yeah, spectator. They come up. Particularly has that. And they include, you know, the kind of general defense of like one story is, quote, the weather isn't climate change, meaning like don't apply the one to the other. Another one is, quote, the good news on climate. And then a third one's called why climate change is good for the world. And it's by <laughs> just went, it yeah. went whole hog. From October 2013, exactly 10 years ago, by a writer named Matt Ridley. Oh, who, when you dig deeper into stories about, quote, positive climate change, you find more and more stories. Like, he was a guy who was really writing about this. And so I thought, well, he's a guy. And he comes out of the Uh, gates in the story saying, like, when you hear this, you think it's some kind of weird right-wing talking point. So what's his argument? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
<laughs> Here's a little taste. Quote, the chief benefits of global warming include fewer winter deaths, because presumably it'll be warmer, lower energy costs, because presumably it'll be warmer, better agricultural yields, which may be true, probably fewer droughts. I don't know how he anticipates that. Maybe richer biodiversity. Again, scientists uh, don't seem to think that's going to be the case. It is wow. a little-known fact that winter deaths exceed summer deaths, not just in countries like Britain, but also those with very warm summers, including Greece. Both Britain and Greece see mortality rates, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. His whole thing is like, yeah, but we're not going to die of the cold anymore. This guy sounds like a, he's like a lunatic. You know what that'd be like me saying? It'd be like me saying, hey, Brandon, you know, ever since that asteroid that hit Los Angeles was this bad thing, right? Look around, 5 p.m., no traffic. See at the bowling alley. No trap. You know what I mean? Of course, the things that are interesting or what we're going to see that are interesting is, yeah, how do you explain some of these positive things to a denier or something like that without that becoming like the keystone argument that it's okay and then their big gotcha moment for you? What this little survey of climate change stories revealed to me, kind of, I think, for the first time, which maybe isn't that novel of an idea to anybody else, but to me, it was sort of illustrative of the way we conceive of climate change, right? And particularly like the spectator story, which says, you know, here are going to be all these benefits. And similarly, other stories which say here are going to be all these negatives, is that it assumes two things. One, that climate change is somehow in the future. Here are the changes that are going to yield. And it also flattens those effects mm. so that you're seeing a listing of all of the things that will happen but you're seeing them all in the same story. So it is as though there's a barrier and we're going to cross through that barrier and all of these things are going to happen, you know, like a shutter coming down. As opposed to what I think the wine story and the beer story and some of these kind of more smaller localized things. It's like, no, these are events that we're living through a little bit of change here, a little bit of change there, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And I think that's a more interesting way to think about these changes. It's like, well, how does climate change affect this growing area in this particular part of Kansas? And how does that affect people who live there? You know, how is it going to affect bird migrations through Los Angeles? How is it going to affect all these little things? When is it going to happen? Rather like, I don't know, a haunted house, Stephen, in which you go from room to room and you experience <laughs> different things rather than it all being in one place coming at you at once. That seems like a more honest approach to it. It's like we're living through these changes now. Some of them are going to be sooner some of them yeah. are going to be later. Some of them are going to roll out over a longer period of time. But thinking about these things, not only in isolation and not only about the negatives, but also the potential positives, how can we capitalize on that, whatever that means, I think is, is, is really worth I think it's really worth thinking about. And it pulls us away from this kind of boogeyman idea of this thing that's inevitably hurtling toward us. There's nothing we can do. And all of the effects are uniformly negative and immediate what you're bringing up too is another weird like kind of dimension to paying attention to the news and paying attention to what you're reading and how right it, it, it's the opposite of looking closer at a myth about your kids candy being poisoned right and just starting to see where those few sources come from but there's an entire other constellation of stories that exists within the climate change story that are pretty much not paid attention to because it's so monolithic, either on in one way where you think it's like the, the sky is falling, we're all going to die, or it's, yeah. the, it, it's a myth, 
right? So I think you're bringing up another even more nuanced way to read the media. I think what both of our stories have in common is that they demonstrate the ways in which fear creates mythology, right? Like if you're afraid of something, that fear Mm. just builds on itself and it creates its own narrative. And you at some point stop questioning the nature of that thing. And you just go whole hog on the idea that it's a scary thing. It must be avoided at all costs. Let's stop asking questions. Let's stop analyzing it. And you stop trying to parse out what's true versus what's not, what's embellished, what's totally fabricated, and what's nuanced. You know, So I think that's the idea is like, how do you look at a thing? Yeah. How do you look at a thing and tease those elements apart and figure out what's really the razor blade, Stephen? Yeah. And what's really the apple? <laughs> well, Stephen, this has been Journos. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And I'm Stephen Jackson. And we'll see you next time. Mwah, ah, ah, ah. This is going to be really stupid since we're going to have more episodes between here and Halloween. But what are you going to do? I think it's fine. You don't think people are going to just not tune in until the November.